Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. I'm great to be with you again. Um, really excited about today's interview um, conversation. I prefer to call them conversations. Uh, my guest today is an author and a speaker, somebody who got a book contract from doing a talk um, and sharing a bit of her story. So welcome Stephanie Tate. Hi. I'm excited to be here. This is fun. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. You've got um, Stephanie's got an amazing story. Um, yeah, it's just a, I'm not going to even go into it too much because we'll just, we'll just talk. <laughs> we'll just we'll just get into the story because it's just it's amazing. It's inspiring. It's powerful, um, and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. So, Stephanie, tell us a bit of tell us your story. Okay, it's always hard to figure out where to start with that. So. Um, <laughs> So I was born and raised in California. We just moved to Oregon about five years ago. But um, born and raised in California, I was actually adopted at age three out of the foster system. Mm-hmm. So I have uh, an amazing adoptive family, two brothers and me, all of us adopted out of the system. Grew up in a pretty traditional conservative Christian household. Uh, and about the time that I was around 16 years old, I was a very serious ballet dancer. That was kind of my life, was dance all the way around. But I started to get sort of weird injuries and very run down, and my body just wasn't cooperating anymore, and nobody could quite put a label on what was happening to me. So I started sleeping like 10, 11, 12 hours a night, still waking up exhausted. My parents were very frustrated with this whole thing. Uh, I went from being incredibly bright and gifted in top of the class grades, he just plummeting grades, couldn't keep up with my coursework, not understanding the material. So my parents took me to doctors who took a look at everything and basically said, we don't know, like we can't find an answer. So, well, she's 16 years old and she doesn't want to get up out of bed. She's probably just depressed. Probably just doesn't want to get up out of bed and go to class and do her life anymore. So have you tried Prozac? So they threw antidepressants at it for a while, saw no real improvement, but I started to get much more physically sick. So by about college, I started having seizures, I was in constant chronic pain, there started to be more physical symptoms that they could see, like seizures. Yeah, wow. Uh, I got really bad arthritis, like my hips looked like an 80-year-old woman's hips, they were talking about replacing a hip before I turned 40. Nobody had an explanation for what was going on with me, though. And so when I would have physical symptoms, they just sort of throw up these concurrent diagnoses. Like, you have epilepsy, and you also have chronic fatigue syndrome, and you also have fibromyalgia, and maybe you have lupus. And they just sort of lined them up, little ducks in a row that had nothing to do with each other. Or I'd get a doctor who would just say, my tests aren't showing anything obvious, so maybe you just like attention a little too much, or it's all in your head, you're just depressed. And around and around we went like this for 15 years. Wow. Um, I had seven miscarriages in the course of those 15 years to have my two boys. And again, doctors just sort of said, well, these things happen sometimes. Not seven times in a row they don't. No. Uh, Absolutely. And it wasn't until just about three years ago, I think now, that we finally... Finally, after fighting and paying for our own private lab work and doing all my own research, found out that I had undiagnosed Lyme disease that entire time. So there was literally a bacterial infection that was running rampant in my system for 15 years unchecked. So wow. even when you find out at that point, it's a relief in some ways because you get to say, I wasn't crazy. I yeah. knew I wasn't crazy. <laughs> That's really gratifying to go, I was right. I wasn't nuts. But on the flip side, you find out, you know, for 15 years, bacteria, this, I don't explain it, but uh, Lyme disease is this bacteria, they're called spiritists, that are literally shaped like little corkscrews. Right. So they literally drill down into your tissue, making little cysts and holes and causing damage to your physical tissues. You can't just reverse that because you have a diagnosis now. You can work mm-hmm. on getting that bacteria out of your system. But the damage to your brain tissue, especially, my heart damage, like these things don't just reverse themselves and go away. 
So on the one hand, you're thrilled that you have an answer, but on the other hand, the answer is you're probably going to be some level of permanently disabled for the rest of your life. It's not sort of the relief that you expect out of a diagnosis at that point. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So I've only known what was wrong with me for the better part of about three years and only been actively treating the real problem for those three years. Uh, so a lot of my work and a lot of my writing, and weirdly enough, I hate this word, but a lot of my platform online sprung very organically out of, um, I'm very extroverted and I'm an oversharer by nature and I'm very talkative, but I was bedridden a lot of the time with this sort of mystery illness. And so social media sort of became that outlet of I could connect to the world and I could talk about my experiences as a chronically ill and disabled person without having to get up out of bed and go find people to interact with. And so that platform just sort of sprung organically out of people who responded to what I was sharing online. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's it's what happens when you share your story as well, I think, that people just resonate. People connect with something that's true. Yeah. Um, and, if yeah you sh- and I came up in... in in a conservative Christian background in which this really wasn't a thing. This, this oversharing is very much considered a, a, a negative. It, it, it's mm. attention-seeking behavior. It's dramatic. But the correct answer to how are you doing is, I'm great. I'm fine. How are you? And so the more your answer is consistently, I'm not so great, and here's what's wrong with you. I'm not good, and I'm going to give you a whole pile of private details instead of putting a facade in front of it. Um, it was a very lonely and isolating experience to be that kind of a person in a culture that you just don't do that. Yeah. That's, that's not how we do things. I mean, we do past tense testimonies, right? Like this horrible thing happened to me in the past, but Jesus. So then it all worked out and I'm good now. And that's why I'm allowed oh, yeah. to talk about it because it's past tense. It's not oh, right now. Yeah. So there wasn't really a forum for present tense testimonies in the church in the way that I grew up and so I sort of found that outlet on the internet it's funny how that happened yeah I'm I'm, yeah it resonates a lot in in terms of that culture where you almost have to pretend everything's okay people ask how you are because they want to be nice and Mm -hmm. not because they actually want to know how you are like um you and then know. you're almost seen as the rude one because yeah. you responded with an actual answer threw off the whole social dance now. It's yeah. like, wait, what What did you just know? No, we don't. You wrecked it. Like, yeah. Everyone looks at you like you're the strange one because you actually answered the question honestly. And you weren't supposed to do that. No, no, yeah, that's right. It, it, and it's, it, it's really strange because everyone has problems and they just don't talk about them. You know, it's... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I kind of not in. I'm not in the in in kind of evangelical traditional church anymore. I still have a I still have a Jesus spirituality very much so. But um, but I've been so I've been in that in that in that situation and where yeah and where it's like oh let's just share the stories of those who got themselves sorted out and fixed everything and where God saves God saves everyone rather than like somebody go up and share their story about how things suck right now and they've prayed and nothing has happened and they're still mm. things still suck and they don't know what to do and they're just trying to figure it out because that story connects so much more than the super superman god thing that you know where god saves everyone because that's not most people's experience um, well, i think that's the root really of why i wrote my book in the first place is because i didn't see that story a lot when I was in the place where I was, I mean, it's not like I didn't pray for healing. It's not like my mother didn't agonizingly pray that I would be healed over and over and over again. And, and when you hear the stories again and again of this is how we know God is faithful because he gave my friend, you know, the magic check that covered exactly enough for rent when he didn't know where it was coming from. And he gave my other friend the miracle baby after 10 years of waiting. And he gave my other friend healing from this illness and and when you don't get it, you're sort of left with that question of, well, if that's how we know God's faithful, because that's how these testimonies are so often presented. See, this is sort of proof 
that God is good and God is faithful and he, he will arrive and show you himself when it doesn't happen and you're, you're waiting and you're waiting, you're left with that question of, well, now what? Like, what does that mean for my theology then? When mm. Do I not have enough faith? Do I have mm. some sort of sin in my life that I'm being punished for? Is he trying to teach me something and I'm not getting the... I went through all these sort of bad theologies, if you will, to get to this book, which is a lot of what the book is about, is sort of identifying those bad theologies we have around suffering and pain mm. and lament and grief and tragedy in our life and saying, okay, well, if it's not, just wait long enough and he'll always fix it. If it's yeah. not, well, he's punishing you for something. And if it's not, well, he's trying to teach you something so he gave you cancer. If all of these things are false, what are we left with? What does a healthy theology of suffering look like in a church that doesn't like to talk about this stuff? Yeah, I'm absolutely with you all the way on this. And then, yeah, and this is where this kind of idea of, oh, um, there's something wrong with you if God's not healing you. Like, um, my oh, my favourite one was um, unresolved sin. That yeah, was that was my I... favourite one. Like, like, okay, you're, you, somehow there's something that you don't know you're doing wrong that God knows you're doing wrong. So that's why He's not healing you. Like, because only. Because only people who don't get healed have unresolved sin. Like everyone else has their everything. Oh, yeah. Everyone else has everything sorted and resolved. And like you know, some people have all their sin organised and know what it is. And some people just don't. Like, and that's why God doesn't heal you. You know, it's like. And sometimes they don't actually say it like that now because it's not polite to say it like that now. But that's what they mean. Oh, but well, I've had. I did have someone in my life who kindly wish I would see my loving air quotes kindly <laughs> suggested that I should consider the possibilities because after seven miscarriages it's well you know one or two happened but seven you know is maybe something under there and I talked in the book briefly about I actually pressed, I pretty much tortured myself pouring over the Old Testament story where uh, the prophet comes to David and says hey you know, you think you and Bathsheba got away with this thing, but you didn't get away with it. God, God sees, God knows, and he's fine, but I'm here to tell you that baby's not going to survive because God still knows what you did. He used to pour over this story and basically torture myself with it, going, okay, is there some, is there some sin that I, like, forgot to confess, some sin I'm not noticing, something that you're trying to teach me and I'm missing? Like, just tell me what it is so I can have babies that live, which is, it's horrible now that I look back on it, but that was really how my thought process worked. That's what the, the faulty theology of suffering I had brought, been brought up with had left me with, was I needed some sort of tie a bow on it, if X, then Y, exclamation. There must be a Y God was doing this. I just needed to figure out what it was, figure out what to blame so I could fix it. Uh, and that just left me empty-handed and guilty and confused all the time. It didn't. It didn't help me cope with what I was going through, and it certainly didn't help me learn anything or experience God in that suffering because I was so busy trying to fix it, make it go away, and find this magic formula, all while guilting and shaming myself in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like those people who... Well, I, I lost a parent when I was in my early 20s. And, um, I'm so um, Thank you. But, uh, it was, yeah, it's like 19 years ago now. But, but yeah, and, and like, it would have been, been like somebody coming to me and saying, like, oh, this happened, God's going to use this. God's all going to... Like, this happened for a reason. God, God doesn't waste anything. You know, like... Which, when you just lost a parent, is like the worst thing to hear. Like, um, or like, oh, oh, she was a Christian. Don't worry. Like, somebody actually said that to me. Like, you know, don't worry. She was a Christian. She's okay. And I'm like, I wasn't worried (laughs) first, and um, second, that doesn't help. Like, (laughs) um, but you don't say anything because you don't say anything because you don't want to upset people. Like. Um, be rude or whatever but inside it's like just shut up please like that doesn't help at all yeah. um yeah i think i wrestled a lot with the book around this idea that first of all i think i think a lot of the most holy things exist in tension i say this a lot i 
I see a lot of tension between seemingly contradictory ideas when things are most sacred. And I think that's part of why we see so much infighting in, in churches. You know, is it is it grace or works? Is it is it truth or showing love? Is it this? Is it that? How how do we connect these seemingly disconnected ideas? Well, we must just have to pick which one is more right and stand on that side because that's more comfortable for us. When in reality, I think we serve a huge, multifaceted God who's, who's a God of a lot of both ands instead of either or. And the truth in these seeming contradictions is usually found right in that place of most tension, right? Absolutely. And I, I think suffering is, it is where I see this illustrated best in that we're constantly looking to wrap things up in those little trite boxes and tell people, oh, it's okay, she was a Christian, so it's okay that she died. Or, you know, God's trying to teach you something with this. And one of the ones I wrestled with the hardest is the tension in there is a difference, as subtle as it may sound, between saying, I believe God, you know, killed seven of my babies to teach me something, and saying, I do believe that he can and does redeem my pain faithfully for my good. Yeah. They sound the same, but they're not. And there's this tension in that middle place of, yeah. I can fully believe God did not want that for me, that God wept when I wept, that no part of him was like, I'm going to go kill some babies today, because that's not the God that I serve. That's gross. But on the flip side, I can still fervently say, I did see goodness buried deep inside those horrible things. I did see him make beauty from ashes. I did see him redeem my pain in ways that I never expected. But that's not saying, oh, so see, he caused it. You know, your baby died so that this could happen. That's, we don't need to do that. We don't need to rush to tie everything up with neat ends and little bows and compartmentalized boxes that are so logical and make sense. We don't have a big logic, you know, a tiny logical God that was created by human minds. We have a big, multifaceted God that we're never going to be able to fully comprehend. And part of the reason we say these stupid things to people in tragedy is we're trying to. We're trying to wrap it all up in tiny boxes. And it just makes us say stupid, unhelpful things. Because yeah. it's all very layered and complex, and it's never going to be simple. I don't for two seconds think there's going to come a day where I'm going to look back and go, it all makes sense now. That's why seven babies died. Because, no, I, that we're never promised that. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a reason why everything happened. Mm -hmm. That's saying that he can redeem our pain for good things is not saying so he'll explain to you why that had to happen. But I think we keep looking for that, and it's part of the reason we say this stupid stuff. Yeah, and... I know when I, like, it's 19 years since I lost my mother. And now, I wouldn't change the person I became because of, because of what happened. But I still would go back, I still would want her back. I wouldn't, yeah. I would never have wanted that to happen. I don't think, don't think God would have wanted that to happen ever. No. But at the same time, I wouldn't change who I became because of it. Um, because it, it helped me grow, it helped me grow up it helped me become more independent it, it, so many other things um cycle of events that happened as a result of that 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 changed my life so i, I wouldn't change what happened as a result but um but i would but obviously i would change the event itself if i could so um yeah i know exactly what you mean and again it's that it's that space of seeming contradiction but if you, if you don't have that, it, it, you're left with running to one of two sort of creepy sides. You're either like, I'm so glad my mother died, which is gross. Yeah. <laughs> or you have to dive headfirst into the cynicism of, well, there wasn't just, you know, nothing good came from any of this. Everything sucks. Life is horrible. It's, it's all just a series of horrific events, and, and that's it. And neither of those ways clicked with me. <laughs> which is why I was sort of left feeling out of way in the dark. For, so what does it look like to sort of hold two lines of tension at the same time, right? To feel like I'm being pulled in two different contradictory directions, but that's the place where I found the most balance, was in that middle, in trying to hold on to these seeming contradictions and say, it somehow pieces of both, and, and I don't know what that looks like, but I'm going to kind of fight out this, this middle way where we're not jumping full bore into cynicism, 
but we're also not, you know, naming and claiming healing on the other end or or saying, oh, well, God gave you cancer to keep you. I'm not comfortable in that extreme either. But mm. it's very lonely here in this middle. I think there are a lot of people looking for this way, but I just didn't see a lot of people wrestling it out. And the book kind of came out of that. Of It's almost, I wish this book had existed 10 years ago when I needed to hear it. Yeah. But it yeah. didn't. So I wrote kind of what I would have wanted to hear when I was back in my most rock-bottom places. And, and I didn't have that example in front of me of somebody saying, this is what it looks like to fight for that tension of the middle place. This is what it looks like to say, I'm not willing to chuck it all out the window and say, you know, God is in none of this. It's all just meaningless garbage and life flows until you get to heaven and we're just biding our time here for now in the sucky place. That didn't work for me, but I felt equally out of place in the land of everything happens for a reason and he had a plan for all of this and this is just what's perfect and you just don't understand his perfect plan so just learn how to accept it with a better attitude because i'm sure seven babies dying is somehow what was best for you know the kingdom so just suck it up and accept it neither of those ever clicked with me so i wrote something different yeah something i wish i had had yeah and we're going to talk about that in a minute um i mean i love that whole kind of non-dualistic non-binary place like where everything belongs you know and like I, I that's where i kind of have got to in my spiritual journey that i'm not like i'm not conservative i'm not liberal progressive i'm just a follower of jesus like i just yeah. i just have a jesus spirituality and it's open to all different stories mm-hmm. and different experiences and different ideas from different places and all of them all of them can coexist it's not either or uh, and that's the healthier I think that's the healthier place to be in your spiritual journey and suffering kind of accentuates that I think um, well, and I don't even think they just all coexist I think they're all essential like I wrote at one point in the book about I think I, I agree with you first of all that our stories are really powerful our stories are ways we, we humanize this right we Mm. We express our theology best when we're putting human faces on it and explaining what it means for real people in real context and not sort of vague generalities where we're sitting around debating philosophy in a college classroom. This, this is theology of real people on a real earth who have real human experiences and what does that look like on a day-to-day basis. Mm. But I think we need to step back and recognize that it's not just that these differences in our stories and in our humanity can coexist. I think we don't get a complete reflection of our big, multifaceted God without having these unique experiences and differences. For instance, I wrote this in the book, but I have a son who's on the autism spectrum, right? Yeah. And at one point, it absolutely broke my heart because we've really tried to celebrate neurodiversity in our house, but kids pick up on things. They hear things at school. They pick things up from the world. You can't shield them from the reality of how other people view them forever. And it finally came to a head at one point when he was about eight years old and he prayed a heartbreaking prayer in which he asked God to make him not autistic anymore. And it, it, it broke me apart because I couldn't believe, you know, we tried our best to avoid raising him under that sort of stigma and there it was. And I needed to explain to him just how much being autistic was an integral part of who he was. But he's also very little. So I made up a story, much like Jesus taught in parables, I, I made up a kid-friendly story. And I tried to explain to him the idea of all of us being puzzle pieces, pardon the bad autism pun, but all of us being puzzle pieces. And how, you know, it would be easy to look around and see all of these blue puzzle pieces that all look like bright blue bubbly puzzle pieces and think, I want to look like them. And look at yourself and realize that you're brown. And you've got jagged edges, and, and you're squiggly, and you've got funny little lines in you. And again, this is going to be very cheesy, but this was an eight-year-old child. And so I told him, imagine that brown puzzle piece. The puzzle starts to come together, and you realize all those matching blue puzzle pieces, they're the sky. Lots and lots of sky background. We need lots of those. But you, the brown, angular, funky, squiggly-lined brown piece, turn out to be, pardon the cheese, 
the face of Jesus in the middle of this puzzle. And it was the image that helped him understand if we don't have these differences, if we don't have varying stories from different perspectives and different struggles, we don't put together the most complete picture of that multifaceted God. If we're all male and we're all white and we're all able-bodied and we're all, that's one facet of who God is and we miss all the rest of it. And I hate that, especially with kids like Aiden who are neurodiverse, we're constantly teaching from this perspective of, oh, let's all learn to tolerate each other better, right? Like, let's learn to tolerate mm. our cultural differences and our neurodiverse differences. Or we tell our friends of color, like, oh, I don't see color. We're all going to be one. And, and, and I don't see that it, biblically. It, in my theology, I see the need for this diversity. Like, we can't see the whole image of this big multifaceted God if we're constantly editing out some of those facets and, and sort of pushing them to the side and saying, well, we're just going to focus on these ones in the middle over here. We're going to yeah. focus on just the blue puzzle pieces that all match because we like those and they're cute. But we do that all the time. We're constantly trying to gloss over these things that make us different and say, well, let's just focus on the unity and what makes us one. And We miss so much about God when we're not not just tolerating, but embracing those differences. The differences in our stories are how we learn more about who God is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, toler tolerance is not, a, I don't like that word. It's awful. It's oh. like, it's like, it's about, so, oh, okay, tolerance is like, it's got negative connotations. It's like, I'll put up with you being different than yeah. me. Not, I love that you're different than me. I love how different you are. I love the uniqueness of who you are and your background. I, I love that that you're different I love that we're all different um, yeah. and I don't I, I don't just tolerate it I love it you know um, yeah it's like the bare minimum right like I won't kick you out yeah I exactly. won't I won't eject you from the table entirely you can be here and we just sort of we won't make you leave that's not that's not inclusion that's not celebrating that's not we're going to give you a seat and listen to your voice and include you and make you mm. a part of this tolerance is just well we won't kick you out so it's, it almost has this air of we'll just be grateful that we didn't make you leave. It's yeah. no, I agree with you. I, I don't like the connotations around that word at all. I don't think it's it's helpful to uh, our, our theology either. Like that was the bigger point that I wanted to find a way to communicate not just to Aiden but to other people. And I shared that story in the book was one of the beautiful things about having this sort of deeper, richer theology of suffering is we learn how to connect our weaknesses with each other right like we can't all mm. i grew up in a tradition where you don't want to be a receiver of the generosity you only want to be the giver right like you want to be the people that are giving to the poor but you definitely don't want to be the poor and yeah. the reality is it doesn't the body of christ doesn't function that way and and we as people can't connect and can't play our different roles if we're all determined to be the role that we think is the good one. If we all want to be the good person who's taking care of everybody else and we never want to be on the receiving end. If we don't have these differences, if we don't have people that are willing to step up and share those present tense testimonies like you talked about and say, hey, things are sucking for me right now and here's where I'm at and here's where I'm struggling and here's how I need help. Here's how I can be ministered to right now we're not we're not going to have that connection we're all just going to be fighting over who's the one you know being the giver and there won't be anyone to give to like yeah. it's designed to be this cohesive giving taking receiving being a part of it on both ends yeah um, and we just don't know how to we don't really know how to do that in modern church context well anymore we don't no. we don't know how to celebrate the person who's asking for help all the no, time no we only know how to patronize them um <laughs> that's certainly been my experience anyway um this kind of in evangelical churches this kind of condescending patronizing like oh it's okay poor you like we'll pray for you you know and it's it's probably meant well but it comes across as kind of i'm better than you like oh, it does. there's something wrong yeah. with you you're deficient in some way and we'll take care of you and God will take care of you until you're ready to do what we do and be everything's okay and you can love everybody else and do this for other people you know like 
it's it's kind of like trying to fix things and permanently fix things and like the one true way and like you do this you do this everything will be fixed everything will be perfect and your life will be perfect and stuff which is not true you know um, no so um, well and then yeah. it, all it does is it just uses as a self-help model and, and I see plenty of that in the church this idea of if you live the right way if you make the right choices you're going to have a certain quality of life I mean the initial chapters of the book are really all breaking down this idea of a lot of us don't think we believe in the prosperity gospel because we would point the extreme, we would point to the oh the people with the private planes and God wants you to be wealthy and we know that's garbage so we sort of pat ourselves on the back for oh I don't believe that prosperity gospel nonsense I I have it under control over here but when you really dig in you really look at the basis of much modern white evangelical theology is absolutely steeped in prosperity gospel thinking. Yeah. Because at, at, its, at its root core, the prosperity gospel isn't God wants you to have a plan. The prosperity gospel is any sort of transactional view of God. If, if X, then Y. If you do this, this is the outcome. Sort of taking the book of Proverbs and making it all, you know, prescriptive, right? If you train up a child in the way he will go, he'll never depart from it. So you do X, God does Y, it's all formulaic. It's all the prosperity gospel. Yeah, That's it is. That's all the idea that if I behave in a certain way, God will treat me in X way, in a tangible way that I can see here on earth. That's still the prosperity gospel. Even if it doesn't end up with you wealthier, you know, oh, getting up gosh, out of your wheelchair yes. and walking, it's still the prosperity oh, gospel. Yes, and that's, that's 90% so of modern white theology. Yes, even progressive theology. Like, like anything, that's it. I just realized this as you were saying it, that the whole idea of like, you believe the right things and then you get to heaven is prosperity yes, it's, it's like it's, it's like you do this and you get rewarded with this yes. like that's prosperity that's that's a prosperity it's a gospel it's a transactional view of god oh, the, the, the standing yes. i have as a christian uh, the, the the way the where i am in his kingdom how, how my life goes all of it is ultimately determined by what i'm doing and the funny part is right modern white Traditions would would tell you so they're blue in the face. Oh, it's salvation is by grace alone and not by works. Grace alone, not by works. <laughs> but outside of just that single act of salvation, boy, do we love works. We try to pull them back in anywhere we can in our theology. We might claim that you're saved by believing the right thing, but for absolutely everything else, we have a funny way of clinging back to. But are you behaving the right way? Are you following the right rules? Are you doing the right thing? Are you participating in your church in the right forum? That's how we know that you're a good Christian. And that's sort of what determines what happens to you. I mean, it, it's, I hate to drop his name because he's already blocked me on Twitter, but it's sort of the Dave Ramsey theology. It's why do some people have a house and a white picket fence and a retirement and why do some people live in generational poverty well according to dave ramsey it's because some people make the right choices and some people are either too lazy or unfocused or whatever to do that and in reality you look at life there are so many factors that are ultimately outside of our control yeah right yeah and yet we continue to sell this bill of goods to people of if you make the right choices if you raise your kids the right way if you get married, if you don't use drugs, whatever, you know, the line is of the day, this is how you guarantee that you have a certain baseline quality of life, a certain safety net, a certain level of security. But on the flip side, it leaves us in a world in which people that don't have those things, well, they have the opportunity to make all of these wise choices like I did. So they need to just get off their butts, make good choices, and then they'll be over here living well just like me. I have no responsibility to go lift somebody up out of something like generational poverty, for example, because, well, they just need to learn how to budget and make better choices and spend their cash out of envelopes. And then somehow it's all going to work out because we've sold ourselves the lie that underneath it all, we're ultimately in control of our own destiny, if you will. Like we make choices and then God rewards or punishes us and that's how life goes. It, and we've left no room for the much scarier reality that there are so many things in this life that are outside of our control. There yeah. are so many things that do not make sense. 
Yeah. There are things that you can't choose or behave your way out of. It's just life. Yeah. Certainty is certainty is of any kind is a way of numbing the pain, numbing the yeah. numbing the reality of life. And so certainty, and I've talked about this before. Certainty is it's, it's where addiction comes from. Certainty is mm. it's like you know you're trying to so you numb the pain with alcohol, or you numb the pain with um, like drugs, or but you also can numb the pain with religion and with church and yeah. with. And anything you use to try and get into certainty where everything's predictable and everything's like you know the outcome and you can control it is is basically trying to numb the pain of life and trying to stop you dealing with your own pain like it was only when I got free of that and I actually dealt with my own pain this is what my next book's about that I actually got free and I actually grew up and I started getting deeper in my spirituality and wider and actually like growing you know and maturing and finding who i really was you know um, when you it's only when you only you only do that when you confront the pain you have to the only way out is through you know yeah. um you can't just like and it, it actually kind of makes me feel sorry for people who try and numb the pain by going to church and having certainty in their religion even though it might work for them it might work for them it might work for them for a time but in the long run will it if, if, if everything goes wrong what are they going to do you know um, and I see people where everything does go wrong and they just retreat back into certainty like so that's, that's often what happens there's, there's two responses to great suffering you either go fully into the pain and you deal with it or you just retreat into, a, into certainty somehow whether that's yeah. You know, that, that's why so many I have this theory this is why so many drug addicts and alcoholics end up becoming fundamentalist conservative Christians because they're exchanging one addiction for another <laughs> well, and we, do, we do these sort of pendulum swings right like, it, it's funny that you say all this because so when I originally turned in uh, you know when you sell a non-fiction book right you sell the outline you sell the proposal yeah. you don't have a finished book so when I originally sold this book I had outlined uh, eight, the first eight chapters, and the book now has nine chapters because I had sort of a funny twist on exactly what you're saying, which is I spent years putting this material together, and I wrote eight solid chapters on, hey, we're not promised the magic chest is a miracle baby. Stop naming and claiming your way out of these things and recognize that you don't get to control it, right? The prosperity gospel is ultimately about control. It's this idea that there's a magic formula in which you can avoid your suffering. So figure out what that is and then control your way out of it so that you have control of having a good life. But I had to write a ninth chapter that I had to stick on the end of the book because in those pendulum swings, again, I realized that I had swung wildly to the other side for a while. And then that same sort of root nature issue of control was that was at the root of the prosperity gospel was the same root nature issue uh, of cynicism right of coming to this place of well all healings are garbage all sort of these spiritual experiences it's all bull crap and i'm i i hate when people pray for my healing and i hate when they yeah. and i hate going to those services and i'm not participating in that woo anymore you guys are all stupid because Look how silly you look asking for this ridiculous thing. And I had convinced myself, I put this sort of spiritual icing over the top of this. Of, no, no, I have come to a place of acceptance. Look how spiritual I am. That I don't pray for healing anymore because I've accepted that this is God's will for me. And I had to write a ninth chapter because I realized it was the same root issue of it was all just control. I had just found another way to do it. Instead of control in the form of, I'm going to pray for my healing and God's going to show up and it, this is, I can control that because he promised it if I have enough faith, I had moved to the control of, if I stop praying for healing and stop participating in this component of faith and just rule it all out as garbage, I don't have to deal with the disappointment anymore if he answers no. Like, I don't, I don't have to wrestle with that uncertainty. I found a new control, a new certainty <laughs> in which I just rule it all out as garbage and I'm in this comfortable cloak of cynicism, but all veiled under this spiritual sounding answer of, look how arrived I am at my acceptance. It's, 
No, it was still just control. It's just control with a different face. It all mm. was the same root problem. Yeah. And I have had to come to a whole new, again, standing in the tension place of just because we're not promised the instant healing or the, the miracle baby, it, it doesn't mean that I'm off the hook from asking for it. It doesn't mean that I'm off the hook from saying that's still something I hope hope to see. That's still something I'm going to wrestle out. What does faith look like in the context of I know I may never get that. But does that mean I, I rule out the possibility forever? Does it mean that I delete this whole part of of my faith yeah. with the possibility that it could happen? Uh, that's almost another easy way out. And even as I say it now, I'm uncomfortable with it. I'm deeply uncomfortable with it. I go to services at the church I'm at now where people tell stories of healing and I feel this gut instinctual reaction of, I don't like this. This is making me uncomfortable because that hasn't been my experience. I haven't had the, the miracle healing story, but I'm wrestling again with, for me, a deepened faith is standing in those places of contradiction. It's standing in those uncomfortable places where I say, I can't really make sense of this don't know where I am yet, but that's healthy. It's healthy to say, I don't know how this is going to turn out. So I'm not going to rush to certainty on either side. I'm just going to stand in it and watch how it unfolds because that's what faith looks like for me now. Yeah. If that makes sense. That makes a load of sense. I love that. I absolutely love that. And it is so easy to escape into certainty, to find another kind of certainty. And I'm, yeah, yeah and I'm kind of, I I I want to I one of my kind of mantras is I want to keep growing. I don't ever want to stop growing, and the mm-hmm. only way to keep growing is to keep jumping and keep keep risking the unknown and uncertainty and not trying to control everything and accepting mm-hmm. you can't control things. Um, that is so difficult to. That's the most difficult thing to accept. And I, I still struggle to accept that that I can't. There's certain things I I can't control because I want to control things because of trauma from the past that was kind of my reaction to it was that I want to control everything um, mm-hmm. but same yeah. same I relate to that yeah. so much <laughs> um, yeah it seems to be kind of a reaction from trauma uh, that you want to control everything um, yeah and and so yeah it's just that challenge like every day to kind of embrace risk and uncertainty and confronting our dark places and Examining them um, in safe community. I think everyone will have something they hate (laughs) in this book (laughs) because it's either challenging comfortable notions of faith where God makes everything work out in the end as long as you wait long enough, or if you're someone who nods your head with that part and you're like, Yeah, that's all garbage, you get to the final chapter and I leave you with this heaping pile of, but you don't get off easy either, right? Like cynicism is an easy escape route. We're not going to do that either. So I almost feel like I'm left with a book where everyone will hate something that I said. That's pretty uh, good. I like no that. No one can easy. It's, it's because that's where I am. Like, I wrote this very much not as sort of a past tense account of here's everything that I figured out and I have it all sorted now, so look at me. It's very much, I think I said in the intro, it's very much postcards from the road. Like, I'm still walking this out in real time. I don't know how my story ends. So it seems so weird that that final chapter is literally uh, sort of a memoir account of me going to a service that I didn't realize was going to involve requests for faith healing and me sort of wrestling it out with God in the pew and going, I don't want to do this. I don't want to participate in this. I just spent three years writing this book. How stupid will I look if I go up there? I'm not, I'm not doing that. And feeling very wrongly read that that's exactly what I was supposed to do is walk up to the front anyway in front of everybody where I was going to be seen and ask for immediate physical healing and the kicker of course is the story ends with me not getting that healing and so you're sort of left with this heaping pile of a final chapter that's like what's the actual hell like what am I supposed to get out of that story And, and in a way it sort of serves as a Rorschach test for what you got out of the book that came before it because if your gut reaction to that story is, well, yeah, because healing is garbage, that we just went over it, read the book again. That's not what I said. And if your gut reaction to that story was, as I'm telling it, you're thinking, oh, yes, she's going to get the healing now because she wrote the book 
and she understood all the lessons, so now she's ready to be healed, read the book again, because you didn't get, like, it's, it's sort of the perfect Rorschach test of can you sit in this final chapter with a story of, I went up to the front, how does that make you feel? And more importantly, I didn't get the healing when I asked for it. How does that make you feel? It sort of helps you sort out what you got out of all the theological work that we did in the eight chapters leading up to it. Because ultimately, it's about coming to that place of contradiction and being willing to sit in it and say, I don't need this book to end with a cute story with a neat bow that I can sort of parable up and say, well, that makes sense because X happened so that Y could happen and it was all perfect. It ends with a story of, I, I don't know why it happened that way. And that's kind of the point. I, I, I don't know why I felt led to go up to the front and ask for healing if I wasn't going to get it. I don't know if I'll ever get that kind of immediate, miraculous, physical healing. I don't think that's going to be my story. But I also don't want to get too comfortable saying that won't be my story, so I'm just never going to ask for it again. It's about fighting for those places of tension in the middle where we say we don't get to predict how this is going to turn out. We don't get to know. And any time we get too comfortable with it, we probably need to light a little fire under our butt and get up and get moving again. Because like you said, we have to keep growing. And when you get comfortable in an explanation and when you sit too long with, so it all makes sense now. That's why this all happened. You're not growing. You're, you're sitting comfortably in that place. And I don't want to sit there anymore. And if that means standing in these weird, contradictory places all the time, I'm just going to need to learn how to get comfortable doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that ending. That sounds really great. Because now that I blew the whole book, you don't have to yeah, do that like, <laughs> I, I just know. I love that story. It's, it, it's kind of like, I can just imagine people from different backgrounds reading that and, um, <laughs> and, and, and then, and, and then being like, you're going to have a lot of reactions. There's going to be people that are like, well, see, you didn't get healed because it's garbage. You shouldn't have gone up there. And like, it's okay to have different reactions to that story. Yeah. But, Again, it sort of serves as this Rorschach test of, well, what did you get out of the story? And that's very revealing of where your own personal theology around things like disability or healing or suffering, where those theologies are shaping out is sort of revealed in what you get out of that story, what you think that story is about. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's quite great. I, I can't wait to read this book. And just tell us the name of the book for people who want to read it. So the book is called The View from Rock Bottom. Um, and it has, I just have to say, it has a beautiful foreword written by the singer Nicole Nordeman. And the title actually came because I had a different working title and uh, somebody else had already used it. So sitting in a boardroom with people staring at me and a whiteboard in front of me, I had very little time to quickly come up with a new title for the book. Uh, and I was kind of attached to the old one. I had worked under it for years, so it was hard to think. And I flipped open to the first chapter of the book and just kind of started reading through one of my favorite paragraphs. And it was a paragraph that had been inspired by meditating on some song lyrics from Nicole from this song called The Unmaking. And it's this whole idea of things coming apart and sitting in the rubble. And it was this one line especially where she says, sitting in the rubble, I can see the stars. And it was the idea of sort of finding beauty and finding new things in sitting in the rubble of everything having been blown apart and torn down. And that's what inspired ultimately the idea of the view from rock bottom of I went through that process where I felt like my faith traditions, what I thought I knew about God, what I thought my life was going to look like if I lived a certain way, had all sort of blown the smithereens around me, and I was sitting in the rubble having to decide, do I chuck it all? Do I try to rebuild this? Do I try to build something new out of this? What happened? And ultimately, it was me finding a God that wasn't asking me to rebuild anything, a God who, who met me in the rubble, who wept when I wept, who came alongside me in those broken places. And so that's sort of what inspired this idea of the view from rock bottom, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love, I love that title. Honestly, I just, when I saw that, I was like, oh, wow. 
That's so great. That's such a good time. He showed me the cover design for the first time, and it, I'm trying to describe it. It's like, it's these shades of blue and has sort of this sparkly going on. And again, it's like a Rorschach test because the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, this is so pretty. And you can see so many things in it. And it was funny because the first time I posted the image, I had someone say they saw drowning. It looked like underwater and bubbles to them. And it's somebody who's in a really difficult place right now. And somebody else saw stars, like that lyric from the song. And I had another friend who said, oh, you know what I see? I see, you know how when dust in dark places catches that little bit of light that comes in and it gets all sparkly and floats around like that. I see God making beautiful things out of the dust and the sparkly. It's neat because it's sort of people see different things in the cover and it's very revealing to sort of where they are in their own walk and where they are in their own experience of is rock bottom where they feel like they're sitting at right now? Is it a past tense thing? Is it something they're scared of hitting in the future? People just sort of see different things in the cover and it keeps them yeah, in different ways. I mean, I when I that. first saw the cover, I admit, I, I saw... I saw it as being at the bottom of the ocean and then mm-hmm. light coming up from the top and going up and me on my way up. You know, that mm-hmm. was kind of, that was my my take on it. Because I, obviously I didn't know the background to the cover at that point. But well, and the fun part is the, the woman who drew the cover, she did not know that story of the lyrics that inspired the title at all. Nobody told her about the sitting in the rubble, I can see the stars line. And this is still what she came up with. The oh. first time I saw the, this cover art specifically, I mean, I was in tears because it was, it, it just sort of perfectly encapsulates that, yeah, we all have very different experiences of what rock bottom looks like. And and for some people, they see drowning and some people see stars. Like you said, you, you, you saw yourself coming up to the surface. Some people feel like they're sinking down when they see it. It's it's just neat. I thought the designers just did a brilliant job finding a way that we all yeah. sort, of, sort of find what we need to see in it. I love covers like that. I love art <laughs> like that. Uh, it, yeah, it's it's always great. And, and I'm looking forward to reading it. And um, and it's available. When is it available? It's already out. It actually just came out on the 6th, this last Tuesday. So just about anywhere books are sold. Barnes & Noble has them. Amazon has them. Uh, the, even the Target website has them. So... Just about anywhere you like to buy books, you can probably find a copy. Awesome. And where can people connect with you online? Uh, best place to find me is at www.stephaniepaiterights.com. Um, I have all my social links on there. I have info about the book and where to buy it. I have a little blog. Um, and that's where I connect with people that want to book me to speak or come through their search and hang out. So that's probably the best place to go. www.stephaniepatesrights.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's thank been you so for having good. me, for our sort of rambling meandering. No, it's uh, been... It was amazing, though. Yeah, it's been such a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I almost didn't want it to end. It was, uh, it was fantastic. So, um, yeah, go and check that book out and go check Stephanie's work out. And... Um, um, thanks Stephanie and um, thanks for listening everyone uh, and take care